This is episode 17 with Kath Koshel. G'day legends and welcome to Your Life of Impact, where we connect with world-class athletes and coaches, health experts and enthusiasts, inspiring entrepreneurs and community leaders, all to teach you how to tap into your inner excellence. I'm your host, Brett Robbo, and I'm extremely grateful you're joining us today on your impactful journey. said to you, professional athlete, motivational speaker, charity founder, and extremely optimistic lover of life, a broken back twice, mental illness, suicide survivor, prep for an amputated leg, tumor, burpee world record holder, mentored by the Governor General, catalyst in changing a bikey's mentality to saving another human's life, Presenting to the Prime Minister on using kindness to create resilience, extremely optimistic lover of life, and a $300,000 mistake that is my deeper connection to Kath, and from a town of 800 people in country Australia, I'm sure you'd think I was talking about a movie script. Well, this movie script does no justice for what you're about to listen to. Kath Cashel blew my mind and invigorated my soul, and I have no doubt she'll do the same for you. It hit me when editing this episode that Kath is literally alive because of kindness. She really dives deep into a lot of detail around her memory of the first time she broke her back and how she physically and mentally prepared to get her leg amputated. Her deeper storytelling allows us to be truly a part of her journey And I challenge you to be fully present for the first 20 minutes and immerse yourself into the scene to ride it out with her. This really sets the scene for the rest of her unbelievable experiences and also allows us to fully understand her mindset of determination and kindness. This was definitely a great present experience for me and I feel like I was part of her movie. In this episode, you will learn how to use kindness to create resilience Kath's approach to beat a tumor through acceptance and targeting gut health and mindfulness, and how a tweet from the cricketer Michael Clark led to Kath being the world record holder for the most burpees in a day. So, Kath, I know you're uh, a cricketer and you love cricket, and I was a sprinter, and just to let you know that cricket was the only, one of the only sports I couldn't do, but what I did... Uh, to make the school cricket team in year 12. And I just want, want you to give me some advice around this. Just tell me what <laughs> pops into mind. I thought, yeah, I'll be a bowler. I couldn't even hold the bat properly. So I just grabbed the ball and I would sprint from about 30 metres back and then just hope for the best and just release the ball. <laughs> how, do you, how do you reckon that went for me? <laughs> Not real well, mate. First of all, <laughs> if you're new to cricket, you probably don't want to be a bowler. That's, that's, <laughs> that's for sure, even if you don't think you can hold the bat. But... Um, 
let me guess, it went to first slip. I'm not sure. I didn't even know what first slip is back then, but I can tell you that I did make the team because my best mate was captain and he told this new teacher to the school, oh, Robbo's just mucking around. You've got to put him in. He's the best, <laughs> but the best one we got in the school. So we got to the actual competition on the day and we're playing another school from Burke and my over, I bowled uh, 11 balls. Because, as you can imagine, trying to release it. So maybe it was going out to that slip <laughs> and uh, it was just going crazy. <laughs> what made you want to want to play in your final year at school? Was it? It was the only sport I school? hadn't played. I'd never done never done cricket, yeah. and uh, it looked kind of cool. And I thought, yeah, I want to do this in my final year at school. So I did, and I, so I'm proud to have made the cricket team. But it's probably not the most proudest way that I could have made the team. <laughs> Champion. <laughs> <laughs> so, Kath, we're here in your home in Sydney. And it's a beautiful sunny day outside and we were connected through some beautiful uh, mutual friends of ours, Dom and Steph, and they said, Robbo, you have to get Kath onto the podcast. And I'd already been I'd sort of following, I'd heard of the Kindness Factory and I'd been following it online and then I said, oh, you guys know Kath, do you? Well, this is, this is the way my podcasting journey works please connect us and uh, and they did and I absolutely love the concept of it and we'll dive into that a lot throughout this chat but I just want to say Kath, welcome to your life of impact. Thanks mate, it's a pleasure to be here. We've just uh, enjoyed, uh, I had a coffee and you had a nice green tea at the, at the local <laughs> coffee shop close by. Kath, your journey is quite remarkable and you started it in uh, the sport of cricket that we were just speaking about that I am absolutely hopeless at. There's a lot of international listeners that wouldn't understand what cricket is or how you could get into it. So can you start us, take us back to your journey of uh, a little bit about your cricket beginnings, but then also I know that you had a very proud moment when you debuted uh at Adelaide Oval and then sort of what un- has unfolded from there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my I don't really have a unique cricket story. I suppose uh, the only thing that makes my cricket story unique is the fact that I'm a female and I, I played and, and predominantly it's a male-dominated sport for anyone around the world who doesn't really know that. Um, it's sort of taken off recently, so my friends are now enjoying um, the benefits of um, being full-time athletes, which is fantastic and it's recognition for a lot of hard work. But my journey started when I was about eight. So um, I'm the youngest of four kids. Um, I've got three older brothers. Um, and I think my mum thought I was a godsend when I was born because I was the only girl and I was supposed to be the princess of the family, but it wasn't to be, I suppose, through brotherly and fatherly influence. Um, I gave up ballet and tap dancing um, that I got into when I was four. At the, um, at, I gave it up at the age of eight and I began pursuing cricket. I got sick of chasing balls around the park um, at home from the, that my brothers had hit and I decided that I wanted to be a part of um, the nitty-gritty stuff of cricket. So that's how the passion was born and um, I guess um, from... From there, it just exploded. I lived, breathed, ate, slept cricket. I, everything I did was around cricket. So from eight till about the age of 16, I played in all boys competitions. So I was the only girl um, at that point. Um, and then I discovered that female cricket players existed. There was world tournaments. There was World Cups. There was an Australian cricket team. And I decided that I wanted to be those athletes from there. So, um, I mean, it, it wasn't um, – I wasn't necessarily a skilled athlete. So Elise Perry, Alyssa Healy,
really. I wasn't um, everything that I earned or achieved from the game of cricket was through hard work, grit and determination. Um, and I guess that came from fighting with my brothers all the time over the, the bat and everything like that. But um, I was the hardest worker in the gym by far. Uh, I think I still hold records in the gym. Um, so everything that I didn't or, that I, or I suppose that I, I lacked in skill, um, that the game hadn't taught me at that point. Um, I overcame through being the fittest and, and, you know, challenging my teammates to be better every day. So, um, uh, you know, I debuted, um, most people don't know this. I actually debuted, my, my first class debut was um, in the UK. So I debuted um, for Middlesex at Lords, the home of cricket, which was amazing. I think that was in the year 2008 and I was about 21, something like that um, at the time. So um, that was, um, I mean, as you and I just sort of spoke about, life happens and, you know, chances come and you sort of pursue them and take them. So I wasn't getting a Guernsey here in New South Wales at that point and I got offered my first professional contract overseas. So I I snabbled that up pretty quickly um, and off I went. And it was quite an amazing experience. I came back with a a wealth of skills that I hadn't been able to sort of, I suppose... um, get around here in New South Wales just through lack of opportunity. So I came back with a better front foot drive and um, and I was able to sort of establish myself once I got back from playing in the UK um, to then go on and represent New South Wales, um, which was a lifelong dream for me, um, which was really, really special. So it was cool. I didn't realise that your debut was overseas. There you go. Yeah, it was. Not a lot of people do, I suppose. Um, I mean, the, the dream and the and the pinnacle, I guess, is to do it in Australia, the, the, the country that you were born in and, and the desire to represent your home state. So um, for me, it was it was still quite special. So I came back from the UK and then um, went on to make the Breakers squad and they're quite a um, prestigious squad to make. I'm the, you know, the top performers the last 20 years in women's cricket. So I think they've won 18 out of the last 20 titles. So to crack it in New South Wales meant that you'd sort of made it, um, which was really special. But then that drive took over again and I sort of, I worked myself into the ground a little bit too hard um, and I had this back issue that was just sort of disabling me a little bit, I suppose. I'd, I sort of woke one morning with with no feeling in my left foot and I went and saw the team physio and she said, uh, she said, Kath, what's wrong? What are the symptoms? I said, look, I can't feel my left foot. And she said, well, that's a bit of a concern. I remember Lisa Stalaker, who a lot of listeners may or may not know, she was quite big um, in the game and she's now commentating. Um, she was in the room at the time. There was never really any privacy in team sports. And she sort of just started laughing and, and what do you mean? And I said, well, I just, I can't feel, like I've got no feeling in my left foot. So my physio said, okay, no training tonight. We're going to get you scanned up tomorrow. She referred me to our team doctor, which was Doc Orchard. So Dr. John Orchard, who's quite well known now, he's the Australian team doctor for the men. Um, And he immediately got me scanned the next day and we realized that there was a a disc bulge in my L5S1 area of my back um, and it was quite bad. So I was presented with a couple of different options. I had a big tournament coming up that I was prepped for and that I trained really hard for for the last 12 months and I really wanted to play in it. Um, but the, the doctors and the specialists were all sort of saying, no, I don't think that's a great idea. But um, I suppose the stubbornness in me and I, and I guess a little bit of foolishness as well took over and I decided that I'd get injected with, cord- um, with yeah, cortisol, no, 
with what is it? Um, cortisone injection. Cortisone. D- double in my in my back, um, and I went on to play um, and and get player of that tournament, and then I went on to represent the New South Wales Breakers a couple of games later at the Adelaide Oval, which was quite amazing. Um, uh, it was really really special. I think it was broadcast on Fox Sports. So my grandfa- my grandparents um, from Finley, where I'm from, got to watch it at the Bolo and all those sorts of things. And I got a player and match performance, 57 uh, not out on debut. Um, and it was really, really special. So um, yeah, it's a moment that um, it's probably the best moment in cricket that I ever had. Um, but unfortunately, not long after that debut is when things started to really go downhill for my health. So, And let's dive into that because you said before that you, you realised that you loved cricket, but you weren't uh, just naturally talented. You had to work really hard. You got that on debut, that player of the match performance, but you know that that came from, like you said, you've got, you've still got records in the gym. You had a drive to work. You lived, breathed and ate cricket literally to help you get to that point. Now, here you are after your debut. Take us to tell us more about that back injury and what unfolded from that. Yeah, so I mean, after that point, it was a dream come true. It really was. I thought I'd made it. Um, I, I was representing my state. I was getting paid to do it, um, and I just felt very fortunate to be in that position. But what people couldn't see behind closed doors, and even physios and doctors that were treating me at the time, was that I was in a lot of pain. So I had a lot of back pain. Um, I was generally stiff all the time. No matter, I used to spend hours on a physio table after a game just to get me on the park the next day and to train the next day and things like that. So um, it came at a significant price um, and until ultimately I woke one morning with absolutely no feeling at all in my left leg um, and it was then that we realised it was it was a bit of an emergency um, and I was rushed off um, to the nearest hospital and I had the first of three surgeries to rectify the problem. So when I say I had no feeling in my left leg, like it would literally, I couldn't control any of it. So it would literally drag behind me. It was, I just woke one morning and it was sort of like that. So um, it was, it was dire. So my leg was in a really bad state and so was my back. The two vertebrae, um, there was no disc space in between them. So they'd cracked onto each other and actually broken the, the L5, S1, both those vertebrae had cracked and I was technically disabled at that point. Um, so yeah, life had changed dramatically and in a heartbeat and it was a really rude shock to me for, for a fair while there. Um, I After that first surgery, it was very minuscule. We were trying to rectify the problem to... Um, basically impact a disc height again. Um, so it was a, a micro discectomy through the back. Um, it was unsuccessful. So we tried again, had the second surgery again, it was unsuccessful. Um, and it was at that point that my doctor, Dr. Orchard, um, recommended that I go up to the Gold Coast um, to have this groundbreaking surgery. It's called a total disc replacement. Um, and what they do is they shift the, the, the disc. So they glue the discs that are broken together. Uh, sorry, the, the vertebrae that are broken together. And then they shift them apart. Um, and I actually grew four centimeters in this surgery, which was epic. Um, and they insert an artificial disc. So it's titanium reinforced. So they basically titanium um, the, the bottom of the L5 and the top of the S1 disc, um, sorry, vertebrae, and then they insert an artificial disc and it gives you a lot of mobility and flexibility that I probably wouldn't have otherwise had if I had a what's known as a, a fusion, which is a very old school way of doing things with back injuries. Um, and it was potentially going to allow me to get back on the park. So I was really excited to have it done. Um, and it was, it was it was an incredible surgery. Well, at the time, we thought it was a huge success. So um, I was up in the Gold Coast, had the surgery, two-week waiting um, period where you're lying in traction on your back. So a lot of thoughts creep into your head at that point. Am I going to walk again? Am I going to 
play again? You know, will I have my health back at any point here? But um, after about that two week period, I got up and I took my first steps with my physio and it was just a huge relief. And it was the first time that I could remember ever lying or sitting or even standing and walking that had been pain-free. So the last sort of four years, this degenerative disc injury had sort of been disabling me a little bit and I didn't really give in to that until I'd made the pinnacle or the, you know, the, the accolade that I wanted to make, which was representing my state at cricket. So it was, yeah, it was, it was an amazing feeling to be pain-free. And I suppose not having painkillers going through my body as well was quite remarkable. It seemed to me that I was living in this cloud or bubble with all those painkillers and artificial things going through my body. So it was, it was a pretty relieving feeling at that point. Is it true that in one of the surgeries, one of these first surgeries that they actually thought they were going to have to amputate your leg? No, that came. That actually came after the third surgery. So after the third surgery, yeah. So this one I was just telling you about. So I'll progress the story a little bit if I can. Um, Sorry, I've jumped ahead. <laughs> so what happened was it was a huge success. Um, but what they do in this surgery, it's quite invasive. So they cut through your stomach rather than your back, um, and they push your vital organs aside and then they access the spine through your stomach, um, which is, yeah, pretty heavy stuff um, and you're pretty tender and sore for a while. Um, So I progressed the two weeks, took my first step in hospital and then they said, we'll put you in four weeks of rehabilitation on the Gold Coast. So I stayed there for an an additional four weeks um, until I was well enough or what we thought was well enough um, for me to return home to Sydney to be with my family and friends and to progress my rehabilitation from Sydney as an outpatient. Um, so it was good. And I, as I said, I was pain-free for the first time in about four years and it was a remarkable feeling. And I generally, I suppose my general well-being at that point was really good. I was surrounded by family and friends and, um, I just felt on cloud nine for the first time in a really long time. Um, things started sort of getting worse and worse. And I suppose I I never really allowed myself to succumb to those feelings of the feeling that I was sort of having around my stomach and leg area. Um, what happened was there was a, there was an internal bleed. So that the, when they accessed through the stomach, the scarring there, um, hadn't healed properly and slowly, but surely it was bleeding, um, internally into my stomach and I didn't really realize I'd lost a lot of weight through training and you know better nutrition and all those sorts of things but I didn't really know there was this pool of blood that was forming in my stomach and I didn't realize until one day I looked at my leg and it was quite blue Um, and when I say blue it's sort of like a violet sort of color Um, and I obviously knew that that wasn't right Um, so I started getting tests and things like that and through that period um, I remember wait no one could really tell me what was going on Um, I just could see that people were quite alarmed and um, and taken back at the appearance of my leg and it was really heavy and again I couldn't use it and I was getting around on crutches you know the Canadian crutches and it would drag and um, it was a really confronting period I guess like for, for anyone to see their leg that color but then to have it be so heavy and lifeless um one morning I, one night sorry I woke up I was um I was staying at my parents at the time while I was getting back on my feet and I just collapsed um on the floor it was like um if the best way that I can describe it is if sometimes if you sleep on your arm a little bit funny and it gets that pins and needly feeling or it's just dead and you can't really feel it and it flops a little bit so I've gotten out of bed and I took my right leg stepped on the floor and then I just couldn't really use my left and I just fell to the floor and I thought something's going on here so I dragged myself into the bathroom and I didn't know if I was using the bathroom or not and I was just like something's really wrong here 
and it, I was due to be at rehab that morning at, at 6 a.m. I was a rehab day. So I used to go to rehab at 6 to 8 and then I'd go to work. Um, and I, I, I rang my doctor on the way there because I knew something was a little bit amiss. And I said to him, Doc, I've just um, – this is what's happened. I've gotten out of bed. I've fallen over. I don't know if I'm using the bathroom. It's really scaring me. He said, Kath, bypass rehab. Meet me at the hospital. And I said, okay, it was Prince of Wales. I said, no, no problem. And luckily I was driving an auto and I could use my right leg. So I did, I dragged, I didn't wake my parents or anyone like that to tell them. I, I just sort of drove myself to the hospital and I met him there and they hooked me up to this machinery and they were testing um, the blood flow in my leg. And I was in this room and it was just surrounded by glass. So you could see what was going on the outside. And I was sat in there by myself after the test had been revealed to the doctors. And this whole team of them were sort of just conversing there. And you could see the concerned look on their face. And that's when my heart started to sink and I had no idea what was going on. And my own doctor come in and he said to me, Kath, the news isn't great. Um, We're going to have to amputate your leg. And for me, that was just the last thing that I ever expected to hear because um, I had a back issue and a spinal cord issue and it wasn't anything to do with my leg, although I had symptoms in my leg, but that was never, ever an option. You know, like, I mean, I was, I had a broken back and all those things were happening, but leg amputation was never a thing. Like no one had ever warned me about it and it just came as a huge shock to me. So I sort of said to him, I don't really understand what's going on. Can you enlighten me a little bit more? He said, we're not really sure. We, we can't figure out what's going on. We've tested everything. Your back's fine. Um, everything else is going well. We can't figure out what the problem is. And I said, well, you can't just cut my leg off. Like that's if you can't even tell me what the problem is. And he said to me, okay. And I said, well, what do I have to do? And I suppose to give anyone an indication of what we were facing, a normal healthy person with great limbs and legs would have anywhere between 90 and 100% blood flow in their leg. Um, Anything below 20 is dire and anything below 10 is dead. Um, And mine was at seven. So it was completely dead um, and we knew that. And I said, well, I don't accept this option. Um, Give me some sort of hope or some sort of chance at keeping it. And he said, okay, we think it's, a, it's obviously a blood flow issue. We think exercise will help. And I said, well, I'm an athlete. I know how to exercise. Give me a crack. How long, how, long do we, how long do we have? Like, can you give me a chance here? And he said, we'll give you two weeks. And I, I'm sure that they were just entertaining me so that they – I think they just felt sorry for me. But at this point, I mean, the fact that some of my organs – so my bladder and bowel were a little bit affected. I'd, I'd had that function back already. So that was just a little bit of a scare. But at this point, things were starting to shut down and we couldn't really see why. So it was – you can have your two weeks, but we're going to monitor you daily. So you have to check in at rehab or the hospital every day. And we think exercise is the best thing here. And I said, okay, so what do you mean by exercise? Anything that you can do basically with your leg was the response. I said, okay, I can do that. So what I did from that point on was um, I'd quit. I quit my job at that point. My health was, you know, too important to not give, um, to, to not be distracted by work, I guess. Um, and I would go to rehab every day at five. And I'd drive myself there and I would work out. So I'd do prescribed exercises by their team from five till seven. And then because I was an outpatient, I'd return home and I'd have breakfast, whatever, shower, do all those sorts of things. And then I'd go to my local gym and I'd be assisted by a personal trainer there and I'd do some more exercises, whatever they could help me with. Um, And then if that wasn't enough, I'd go home and I'd have dinner or do whatever. And I wasn't sleeping very well. The stress of what was going on in my life at the time sort of didn't allow me to sleep or rest, which is probably a really bad thing. um, And I know that now. Um, So I had this 24-hour access pass to the gym at the SCG because I was contracted by Cricket New South Wales. Um, And at 2, 3, 4 a.m., if I was awake, that's where I'd go because I knew the gym, I could get in with that card. 
so that's what I did. I'd drive to the SCG and I'd crutch myself into the gym. And um, at the SCG, it's, it's monitored by 24-hour security, which is quite um, amazing. Um, and they would see the lights on in the gym. So I'd get in there, I'd turn the lights on. And um, one of the, the security guards who had befriended through being an athlete and working there, Bobby, he was an elderly guy. He'd he would sort of wonder why what I was doing there. He always had the night shift and he would see the lights on and he'd come in and he's like, Kath, what are you doing in here? And I said, I just need to train. And he knew what was going on with, with me at the time with my leg and the battle that I was facing. So he'd help me. He would strap my leg into a, a spin bike or a cross trainer with electrical tape. And then he'd say, I'd have to go, but I'll be back in 45 minutes to unstrap you and help you do your next thing. So it was, you know, these people were just on board with me throughout this whole journey. Um, so that's what I do every day religiously. I'd train six to eight hours a day just to try and get this blood flowing in, in, in my leg. And it was improving, but not, not to the extent that it needed to. And the deadline was sort of fast approaching. And I got to about a week um, into that deadline. And I remember just sort of succumbing to the fact that it was going to happen. I was going to lose my leg and that that would be okay. But I needed to start preparing myself for that. Um, and I remember just collapsing one day into my brother's arms. Like I wasn't, it was sort of a shell of myself at that point, just through the worry and the stress of everything I was going on mentally in that space as well. Um, and he said to me, Kath, whatever happens, you're going to be okay. And I said, I know that, but I need to give this the best shot I've got. So back on track, I went and I did the same thing. And we got to the Sunday. So I was due to be amputated on the Monday and we got to the Sunday before it. So the day before and my family and friends um, got together and they decided to hold like a barbecue and we ended up calling it Kath's last day with two legs barbecue. Um, and it was quite, um, it was a really good day, actually. It was really, really special. Um, but I knew that, you know, tomorrow the inevitable was happening and I was going to lose my leg. And I'd been prepped by an amputee support foundation called Limbs for Life onto what I could expect from, you know, how to shower, care for your, your limb, um, you know, to ramp up your house, what, what you need in your house, all the essential tools and things like that. So I'd been prepped really well and I felt, men I felt mentally ready to have a let my leg amputated um but amazingly enough um that night um was quite scary I woke at about 2 a.m feeling absolutely crook um and collapsed unconsciously my dad found me heard the th sort of the thud on the floor and he rushed me into hospital and that's when they found the internal bleed so they did a full body scan and um you know, it was, it was pretty dire there for a while. I actually nearly lost my life and a lot of vital organs had sort of started shutting down through the exercise that I'd been doing. So it was actually really bad for me um, to be exercising as much as I was, but we didn't really know that and no one could really figure it out until that point. Um, and once they'd found that bleed, um, you know, three hours later, my blood pressure in, in my left leg had risen up to about 35%. Um, percent. So we knew that it was progressing and we knew that was the problem. Um, but I was facing a really huge battle to sort of still keep it and then to actually make it functional and be able to use it again um so after that sort of stint in hospital I was admitted to to rehabilitation for you know six to twelve months to give it the best shot at, at first of all keeping it healthy and second of all walking and living a sort of normal life I guess so so you challenged when they they were ready to book you in to amputate your leg and you'd had your uh celebratory barbecue of <laughs> last uh, barbecue with two legs and in actual fact, it was uh, a very grand blessing that you challenged it because it didn't end up being a, 
an issue in regards to your leg at all. It was actually the internal bleed that was stopping that blood flow. Yeah, I mean, and and thankfully I did because I think at the time the doctors, as I said before, the doctors I think just entertained the idea that I could try and keep it. They said we'll give you a shot, but I'm I'm sure in their minds they were convinced that it was a, a worthless sort of you know mission that I was embarking on but they let me have that which was which I'm very grateful for actually um probably the only negative person that I'd met along that journey um was the orthopedic surgeon um who was due to amputate my leg who sort of laughed at me when I said I would probably keep it um because I was up against the impossible almost I, I guess what the, the medical professionals described it as so um I am very lucky I mean it wasn't even a back issue in the end it was something from surgery and there was a little tiny complication um that sort of saw me down that path but really grateful that I had the stubbornness and you know the resilience to sort of knock them back and say give me a crack because if I didn't then yeah there's absolutely no way I'd have my leg today so your stubbornness <laughs> saved your leg and you talked about so they said maybe six to 12 months in rehab and that's where you started to spend some time and people might think that rehab is a miserable place and and not really reate relate rehab to a love life but I believe you had a different experience to this in in your rehab I did yeah I mean rehab is a very confronting place um it's actually a step down from hospital in my view it's um yeah it, it is a very confronting place and, and the rehab center that I was in specialized in spinal cord and um, stroke so you know a lot of brain injuries and um and spinal cord injuries as well so um for me to go there being a fit you know 24 year old which I was at the time um it was a really scary place and it was a place I didn't really want to be in um so I lasted about a week of complaining and whinging and not adapting to my surrounds before I succumbed to the fact that I was there for a long time and the only person that had control of getting me out of that environment was myself. Um, so um, I decided I made a choice that day to basically pursue a life. Um, I suppose I looked at it two ways. If I if if I choose to see this in the and and and, and take this experience the way that I know I can, then I know that I'm going to benefit from that. And if I choose to stay in this same mindset of you know hating the place and not wanting to be there, then I'm not going to progress and I'm not going to be able to walk and I won't get out of here as quicker. So I chose um, the first option, which was to really get my teeth behind it. Um, so what I did was I, I made friends with everyone. And um, I mean, the mean age of the place at that point was 67 um, and I was 24. So a lot of the patients were above 75. And um, I was somehow, and I'm still not sure how this happened. I never questioned it at the time. I was um, put in the category of the over 85s because it's the only place that they could put me. And we used to have group therapy every day. And it was the 75s versus the 85s. And I was sort of in the 85s. And they felt that that was, you know, the upper hand because I was a bit fitter than everyone else or a lot fitter than everyone else. Um, but the captain of our team was this woman called Daisy, um, who was my, my a very dear friend of mine and my first friend from rehab. Um, her name wasn't actually Daisy, it was Iris. I called her Daisy because she called me Alice because she had dementia. And <laughs> she was just really special. And it was through that friendship, I would take her tea every day at three o'clock that I first of all allowed myself to go, hey, I'm here and I'm, I'm living and I'm breathing. I'm lucky to be here. Um, so I'm going to make the most of this situation. So I just made friends with the elderly and it was amazing. And, uh, you know, I suppose not 
notwithstanding the fact that I, I wasn't there to make friends, but I did, I was very surprised to, to find love, as you said. So it was about um, maybe a month into my stay um, that I, I first met Jim, who um, was a, a fit 25-year-old man at the time. Um, he'd played rugby league um, semi-professionally. Um, and the reason he was in rehab was because he had um, competed in the Tough Mudder um, obstacle race and fell from a height and shattered a few of his vertebrae. So we're facing like very similar injuries, both learning how to walk again. Um, but for me, it was a, as a comrade, um, you know, someone very much the same age as me and very much the same mindset as me. So he was just a, a genuinely beautiful guy um, with athletic abilities um, who just had this really big passion for life. Um, and I mean, I, I saw my, a lot of myself in him at the start as well. Um, he didn't want to be there at the start. So I latched onto him and just sort of showed him the way and a lot of the things, you know, the unknowns, just the phys- physical therapy room and this is what you do here. And, and we just became friends very quickly. Um, so about, it was a real shock to me about a month after that, that, you know, friendship turned into a little bit more and we struck up a romance of all places in a rehab center. So, um, it was quite beautiful actually. Um, you know, we did all sorts of silly stuff together, wheelchair races in the corridor. And we, we created a community as well, which was really, really cool. I mean, I think a lot of people took our lead and then just got amongst the, you know, the funness that we were creating and um, the environment that we we're creating. So it was really, really cool. We were caught in, in the wrong room a lot of the times by the nurses and, you know, all the silly stuff that 24, 25-year-olds do that when they're in love and a little bit silly. But um, outside of that, we drove each other in our recoveries. So, I mean, I've been quoted to say that um, there's absolutely no way in hell that um, I'd be walking today if it wasn't for that man, like for, for Jim, because he he just gave me this drive to want to walk better and to be better every day. And I think I gave that to him in return as well. Um, and I'm very grateful for that that relationship because I think, you know, my recovery progressed the moment that we started working a little bit closer together and, you know, outside of rehab walls, you know, we were able to sort of on Sundays, it was sort of our favorite day of the week because we were able to signed out of rehab and go and have a coffee and it doesn't sound like much but when you're sort of amongst the grind of rehab for six days of the week a coffee in a cafe is sort of like paradise so um it was really really special and then you know we didn't really talk about rehab when we weren't doing rehab exercises so it was more about a life and building a life together and what we'd do when we got out of rehab and where we live and you know kids you know I think we said we'd have four kids just like my family you know three boys and a girl but <laughs> we had no control over that but we we dared to dream um and and it was absolutely incredible it was the first time in my life that I'd dreamt about anything other than being a cricketer um I was very one-dimensional prior to breaking my back um the first time so um it was the first time that I allowed myself to to be vulnerable with someone as well um and to let my guard down and to be loved and and learn how to love back as well um outside of you know a family relationship or something like that so um the first you know serious relationship that I ever had um and it was really incredible to be able to sort of share my life with someone which was incredibly special like I look back and they're some of the best moments of my life, sharing my life with Jim and those experiences. So, yeah, really incredibly special. Who won the wheelchair races? <laughs> I did. Uh, no, I didn't. I was actually really terrible at them. I couldn't uh, – we used to try and grind 
um, past the corner and I just sucked at it. There would be like those screech marks on the floor. It was like that white floor that they have in like hospitals. Did you ever <laughs> race Daisy in the wheelchair? <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> she was sort of bedridden a lot of the time. So oh, it was okay. more, Daisy was awesome. She used to, I'd take her tea at three and because she was at risk of uh, from pneumonia, I'd have to thicken it with this. I don't know, it was this weird thing that you'd thicken it with so it didn't get, you know, absorbed into her lungs the wrong way. And she would tell me stories for an hour. And I'm sure, like, I'm certain that absolutely none of them were true, like, because they were the best stories ever. Like, but, like, I'm like, that, that just sounds made up, but I'm going to laugh anyway. And it was, <laughs> she was just really awesome, but no, no wheelchairs with, with Daisy, unfortunately. <laughs> so, you and Jim have had this uh, amazing time in rehab. How long were you guys together? Uh, we were together 12 months. So, um, you know, the story progresses again. So, about, would have been about eight months after we'd, been going out seriously that I was sort of released from full-time rehab so I was well enough to go home and I was getting around with crutches at the time um, and I was able to do things really independently. Jim was about a month behind me um, so he um, was progressing well but his accident sort of happened a little bit after mine so he was still an inpatient whereas I was an outpatient so three days a week I'd go in there and do things and then the other sort of time I'd spend at home doing whatever I needed to um, and it was about you know we'd been going out for about 12 months when his release was sort of coming up so um, he was he was doing really well um, and you know we'd been dating for 12 months we'd sort of developed um enough of a bond and a love I suppose to decide that we wanted to live together as well as soon as his release was pending um and yeah he he made it to the last day of his recovery so it was a Sunday night and he was due to be released on the Monday um but unfortunately it it didn't happen he didn't make it um and he passed away that night um in rehab so it was pretty tough pretty tough time so it was suicide that he passed away by and um yeah, it absolutely crushed me and I think the entire community as well. So his family and his friends and um, the rehab community that we created ourselves and um, a lot of other community and like-minded people sort of suffered through that loss as well. So um, an incredibly tough time for, for all involved, I suppose. And this is deep. In reflection, do you feel that this was a catalyst for you to turn your mindset on this situation from grief and despair to an even greater abundance of love that you had developed for Jim? Yeah, I mean, um, it's really, really strange. Um, I get asked all the time and a lot of survivors, I think we're called survivors of suicide. Um, they always sort of say they wonder if the memories of their deceased partner or person, the, the person who sort of passed away by suicide um, were as special as what they thought they were. And I always felt that they were. It was, you know, you can look back at photos and they're smiling and, and people sort of question, were they happy? And that was never an issue for me. I knew I felt that Jim was happy and all those sorts of things. I think you can rack your brain when you go through a loss like that as to why it happened and and, and what happened to make him want to do that and all those sorts of things. But um, at the end of the day, um, you know, it was a choice that he made and, and I'll never know the reason for that. Um, and I never felt anger towards him. A lot of people feel anger. It was never about that. I just wanted to know. I suppose I felt anger towards myself, if anything, uh, more towards myself than him because I didn't see the warning signs or I didn't see it coming and um, – I suffered quite deeply before I decided that I wanted to turn my life around. So um, it was about 10 months actually before I decided, you know, of, of suffering and, and, and feeling that grief and, and going through 
the, the mind circles that you do um, and you rack your brain and you drive yourself a little bit crazy in the process of doing that um, and, it, and it rips your heart out, it really does. Um, but it was about 10 months um, after his passing that I basically suffered a mental breakdown. I, um, I had to go back to rehab where we'd basically met and fell in love and all those sorts of things. I had a bit of a setback with my leg, nothing major. And I walked past his room and a lot of the memories just sort of flooded me. And I, I just hit rock bottom, you know, I had to be sedated and it was really ugly. Um, it wasn't harmful to myself or others, but I was, it was an out of body sort of experience. Um, and I, the only thing that I knew that I wanted to do at that point was to fly to the Gold Coast where we'd planned a life together. And I knew it's where Jim was originally from. So prior to us meeting, he'd lived in Sydney for three years on his footy contract. But um, before that, he was from the Gold Coast and his mum still lived there and her and I had struck up this really close bond and I just needed to be around her at that point. So I I flew to the Gold Coast and we bonded for three weeks. And I remember initially getting there and feeling like I was literally at rock bottom, that things couldn't get any worse. You know, my health was still not not great um, and I'd just lost the love of my life and I didn't know what on earth could ever make me happy from that point. Um, and I remember connecting with his mother, Wendy, and we just struck up this new and incredible bond um, that we, we already had, but um, it was a new one and it was – I basically, how would you phrase it? I suppose that, you know, we, we both could see the pain that each other was going through and we just supported each other. And it was about three weeks after that that I was ready to come home and face my family and friends again. And none of them were angry or anything like that for me wanting to go to the Gold Coast. Um, they just sort of accepted me for, you know, who I was and the feelings and the emotions that I needed to feel. And um, it was when I got back that I realised that I could start building a life again and I suddenly found a little bit of hope, I guess. Um, and it was really simple what I did to get back on track. Um, I, I sort of put it down to three simple things. Um, the first was um, permission to be whoever and whatever I wanted to be. I think prior to that point, I'd, I'd put all these labels on myself. You know, I'm an athlete, I'm an auntie, I'm a sister, I'm a daughter. Um, and that's basically who I am. And I didn't need to be any of those things. I just wanted to be me and, and I wanted to be me as pure um, as I could be, I guess. Um, so I just gave myself permission to start again I didn't need just because I was a cricketer and an athlete didn't mean I had to be if I wanted to be then I could but um you know it might look differently could get into triathlons could do something else who, who knows um but I just gave myself permission to accept whoever I wanted to be um and it was really incredible it was a really sort of eye-opening experience and um it was a relieving experience if anything because I knew that I had hope to be something again or not something but just a person that wasn't just existing that had meaning in their life again which is really cool um, the second thing I did was I tapped into gratitude um, so um, it was really really simple I felt an unwavering sense of gratitude towards all the people that had sort of helped me on my journey so um, my my family my friends first and foremost but most importantly the, the doctors and the medical team that had sort of pieced me back together saved my life saved my leg and pieced me back together so it was really simple the process that I followed um, I got my phone and I called my doctor and I said doc he said he saw my he must have seen my name flash up on the screen he said Kath what's wrong what have you done what have you broken I said absolutely nothing I'm doing really well I just wanted to ring and say thanks and he was really shocked and I said what's wrong and he said well you don't have to say thanks it's my job and I said well I really want to and I'm really grateful thank you and he said Kath it's so good to hear from you and I was really shocked to hear how happy he was to hear from me you know I mean it's a really intimate relationship you have with your doctor when you're going through those sorts of health battles 
And I said, well, that's great. And I said, can you pass me on the next doctor's number and, you know, these three? And he said, yep, sure, I will. I'll send them in a text. So we did. And I went through that process again. I rang those doctors and they said, same response. They're really happy to hear from me that I was doing really well. And, you know, you don't, they're really shocked to hear that someone would ring just to say thanks. So then I rang my physios and then I rang everyone. I rang the cleaners at rehab. And with that done, I just felt incredible. <laughs> and I know that, um, you, you know, I think gratitude is really under undervalued by a lot of different people, but there's something in it um, and it makes you feel absolutely incredible. And I thought, well, I'm doing really well. Um, I've done that and, and, and I'm, I'm going really well. Um, and I got my job back, Cricket New South Wales threw me a lifeline and they said, we want you as our operations manager. So I went and worked for them and I was doing really, really well and life was great or there or thereabouts. It was really, really good for the first time in a long time. And um, I suppose I extended that gratitude a little bit further. I ended up raising $300,000 for the charity um, organisation, Limbs for Life, who had helped me in my time of need. What happened was I rang their CEO and I said, Mel, thank you so much for everything that you did for me. Similar processes to my doctors. And she said, mate, you're welcome. That's why we exist. And I said, I want to take it a step further. Like, let's sort something out here. Um, I want to help you back. I just want to, you know, I suppose pay it forward. So return the favor. Um, what you guys were going to do for me was amazing. And I want to be able to help you back. And she said, okay, what have you got in mind? I said, let's have a coffee. So we did. And Mel is just this amazing woman. Um, she Look up Blooms for Life, anyone who's listening. Um, she's absolutely incredible. She's a double amputee. Um, she was a fitness model in a prior life and what happened was she got stuck um, on a train uh, in between the platform and a train at a train station one day and her legs were immediately severed nearly lost her life um, and she discovered that there was no support out there for amputees um, so she set up her own foundation which is called limbs for life and She's got this amazing energy about her and we sat down for a coffee. Sorry, Kath, I've got to interrupt you there because I've just realised, I'm buzzing right now, I've just realised our deeper connection. So I'm actually connected with Limbs for Life through one of my para-athletes and we do our Life Tees campaign where we team up with an athlete and then she's designed a team. We, we sell the shirts and donate 100% of the profits and that's to Limbs for Life. So I know Mel well and... High five to that. So just there when you hit me, I thought this this is why, you know, this is our deeper connection. We were already connected before Dom and we Steph were, had yeah. actually introduced us. So I love this connection here. And you've raised almost $300,000 for them, you said? Yeah, by mistake. So um, well, That's a big, awesome mistake. It is. Well, I'll progress it. It was absolutely – She well, you know Mel. She's just amazing, an incredible woman. And we were sat down and I said, can I ask a question? It's quite personal. And she said, yeah, of course. I said, what do you miss most without having two legs? Like, I know, She's got the, the prosthetics, which are amazing, and she gets around very, very well. And she said, um, if I'm honest, it's, it's doing burpees. And I said <laughs> – pardon because no one likes burpees right I mean they're the most disgusting exercise ever um and she said I miss doing them because I can't and I'm like yeah that's fair that's a fair point you know it's like you know when you're on a juice fast or whatever anyone gets up to and they can't have food they want it they want it. it's like this whole mental thing and I said well I'll do them for you and she said well what do you mean I said I don't know like I'll this is how I can help um I'll do burpees for you I'd recovered physically from my back my broken back and I was doing really well I was fit and thriving and I said I'll do burpees for you why don't we do we'll make a thing out of it um for every dollar pledged towards limbs for life I'll complete one burpee stupidly thinking I'd raise about a hundred dollars and uh about uh, she said okay let's do it we'll set it up so I set up one of those everyday hero pages um where people could pledge their support and donate to my cause and I shared my story nearly lost my leg this is why I want to support them and they said um so everyday heroes taken it on I've gone great I said, how am I going to do this? So I shared my story and then I 
took it live onto Facebook and social media and all those wonderful things and people read the story and they responded and within an hour of me sharing it, I'd raised uh, $3,000. And, and, you're thinking, and in my mind, I'm like, that's a lot burpees. of burpees. It's <laughs> <laughs> a, a hell of a lot of burpees. And I checked later on that day and we we're at 6,000. And I was like, I don't know. I don't think I could do that many burpees. That's quite incredible. And I was like, well, no, you said you're going to do it. You got to do it. I was like, right. So by the end of the week, we're at like 14,650 burpees. And I was like, that's so many burpees. And I don't know if I can do that. I said, no, you've said you're going to do it. You got to do it. And I said, well, if it takes me a week, then so be it. And I didn't know how it would look because that's a lot of burpees, right? And then um, we were due to do it on the Sunday and on and we'd capped it at 14,650 and I was going to do those burpees. Um, and then that night, Michael Clark, who I knew through playing and all those sorts of things. The um, cricketer. The cricketer, the ex-Australian captain, had tweeted the link um, and it went viral in India. And um, from a, one of the most, you know, poverty-stricken countries in the world, they just donated and... They uh, went to about three hundred thousand, so that was three, that meant three hundred thousand burpees, and there was absolutely no way that I could do three hundred thousand burpees. So, um, what I did is I committed to the fourteen thousand six hundred fifty, and I just put a call out on my social media. And this was in two thousand and thirteen, by the way. So it wasn't you know Facebook and all that was it was around, but people weren't huge on it. And I just said. I need help. I need to do 300,000 burpees and I really need everyone's help. And the world showed up. 300, 300 people rocked up. It was at um, Mortdale Fire Station. It was a community event. 300 people rocked up just to help me do burpees. So I'm there punching away at burpees and people are just around me, just absolutely smashing burpees for me. So what we did is we um, we divided 300,000 by 10 and then we cut them like – and we put 10 on a ticket and we put those in a bucket. And then when you've done 10 burpees, you picked up a ticket and you put it into the empty bucket. And when we had no tickets left, that's how we know we'd done the burpees. But then someone was there because it was a world record attempt. Uh, I think the most burpees in a day by someone at that point was 10,000. And I ended up breaking that record with the 14,650. Um, you did them all in one day? I did, yeah. I, like, my, like, I, I, my triceps, I'm, I'm pretty sure still are suffering from that. Like it was heavy that stuff. That is phenomenal. It was pretty amazing um and uh, i mean physically broken from it because that's a lot of burpees but i have never felt more euphoric in all of my life um and to have mel there in tears um and expressing her gratitude towards me and the community that had helped us do that was absolutely phenomenal um and it was probably one of the best feelings and days of my life to tell you the truth so um just really, really, really special day. Um, and to, I mean, to raise that amount of money and I mean, I sort of say that day wasn't even about burpees. It wasn't about me. It wasn't about Mel. It, it was about a community of people coming together and helping each other out. Um, and that's what I found. So, I mean, I'm, I'm getting sort of goosebumps now talking about it. It was just a really, there's a really cool video of it that I can, I'll share with you later, but just a really epic day. Um, and, and I, I think it just goes to prove that when you set your mind to something, you can achieve sort of anything. So, um, yeah, yeah, that was the the gratitude piece of, of of my top three, I suppose, things that I did to get my to, to get my life back on track. And so, was this sort of the birth of the kindness factory, or had you created the kindness factory, and this was one of the first things you'd done from it? Or no, so um, I mean, that's what sort of got me into that mindset. So from there, I mean, you get a lot of attention from media and all those sorts of things, which is really great. Um, and and I did as well. And um, I was um, nominated for like an Australia Day award, which which I accepted and all those sorts of things. And from there I got um, asked to be on the Young Leaders Initiative, which is a government, an Australian government-run initiative whereby um, seven people under the age of 30 um, 
you know, pursue um, workshops around the country. So you sort of get together and you workshop around Australia. And one day I was mentored up with Quinton Bryce, the ex-Governor General, which was quite special. Um, and she's a phenomenal woman, um, but really tough. So I sort of learned a lot of tough love from her. So um, I, I was around all these impressive, impressive people. So, you know, entrepreneurs and all these people had done remarkable things. And for me, it was just a story of not giving up. So I didn't really feel like I had value to add um, in these workshops because I didn't have the brains that they did. And or I just, I, I come from humble beginnings and I was just someone who never gave up. I had resilience and that's about all I had. And I didn't really understand my worth until we were sort of presented with um, the world water crisis um, in a workshop. Um, and my idea to combat that was simply to share the water. I mean, everyone was coming up with these beautiful concepts of, you know, biodegradable shipping containers that could get it from China to the US. And, and it's, sim- uh, you know, the, the simple method of we have enough water, um, but, we do- um, but we don't share it well enough. And all, well, my response to that was let's learn how to share a little bit better. So things started brainstorming and um, I was then asked to um, present an idea to the Australian Prime Minister, which um, at the time I thought it was going to be Tony Abbott, but I mean, two weeks before I was to present, it changed and it went to Malcolm Turnbull. So I rock up to, to Parliament House, um, it was Kirribilli in Sydney on, I think it was like the third, it was on Halloween of 2015. And um, I was I was asked to share my story of resilience and, and, and all those sorts of things and then what I'd learnt from that and I learnt that kindness is probably the best sort of thing that we could surround ourselves by when we're facing adversity um, as well as gratitude and permission and all those other choices that we make. Um, but for me, the, the one thing that stood out in my recovery was the kindness of strangers. So if I was in a wheelchair or on crutches, someone would press the lift button for me or if you know I was struggling to get into a cafe like we saw the pram earlier, Rob and I were in a coffee shop earlier and he got up to to open the door so it's just those general things that I noticed that made the the biggest world of difference for me that coupled with you know the burpee day and all those sorts of things and I, I come up with this concept called the kindness factory which has absolutely changed my life in so many incredible ways um and that's how the kindness factory was born so um I saw a need that basically um it's a I suppose that coupled with the fact that one day I was at this petrol station and there was absolutely no one around. So next time you're in a petrol station, have a look around. There's always people around you. There was, there was no one there. I was the only one filling up my car at the Bowser. And I thought that this is just really strange. It was quiet and I didn't. it was just a strange feeling. And I thought if someone was here, I'd buy their petrol. And I don't know why I wanted to. Or And I thought, well, no, it's just kindness. It's in, it would be a really nice gesture towards someone. And I think it would make me feel good as well. So I was on my way. So the opportunity didn't really present itself because no one was there. But um, as I was on my way to pay for my own fuel, I saw this mini um, drive in and I thought, you beauty, it's a mini. It's not going to cost me too much for the petrol and it's, it's the opportunity that I've been looking for. Um, so this beautiful woman, Erin, pulled up and I said, g'day, my name's Kath. Um, I want to buy you petrol today. She said, sure. <laughs> we delved into it a little bit more. She said, why? There's always, like, whenever you do something for someone, they always want to know why. And I think that's where we're sort of gone a little bit amiss in society is to, you know, it's, it's not given nature now to help someone out just because they need it. It's more, you know, mind your own business and sort of stick to yourself. And that's what I sort of saw a crying shame. So I bought her petrol and we sh- shared a little bit about our lives and um, she shared the, 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 she, we basically got a selfie. I'm really terrible at selfies. Like I, I suck at them and I can't press the buttons. And she asked for a photo and I said, sure. So we took a photo. She shared it on her Facebook page and it went nuts. And everyone's just like, what are you doing, Kath? And I said, well, I, j- I had it in my budget that week. I wanted to do it. And it's 
I'm buzzing. I, I was buzzing for two weeks and the high that I got from that was way like it was worth way more than the 50 bucks that I spent on her fuel. So it was really incredible. And that's when the kindness factory was born. So me, um, you know, the young leaders initiative, the talk with the prime minister and then this experience and I pieced it all together and I created this platform that allows people to do all sorts of wonderful and, and great things for each other um, for no reason at all, really, I guess. Um, it's just kindness in its pure form. So, What's the mission of the Kindness Factory? Yeah, well, I didn't really know at the start, but it's to achieve a million acts of kindness. Um, so, um, yeah, we're, I think we're at um, – I did a presentation yesterday and we're at 10,687. Um, so people just go onto the website and they tell us what they've been up to. But, I mean, it, it, it's inspiring change, I think, um, in people. So people who were once um, – we have this phrase, it's called don't just watch, where we're saying, well, it's great for Kath or people in the Kindness Factory community to be out there doing this. And people love it. They're, they're getting amongst it and all those sorts of things, but they're just watching other people do it. So what, what we're trying to do is to inspire people to actually not just watch, to get out there and actually do something for someone that might make a difference in their day. Um, and it's been great so far. We've, I mean, ten thousands—it's a lot, but it's a still a long way from a million. But we'll get there. You know what I mean? Like, um, so it's been an epic journey so far. So we actually. I established it and, and made it an enterprise on the 13th of November, 2015, um, which is the anniversary of Jim's passing because he was actually the kindest Beautiful. person. Yeah, he's the kindest person that I ever known. And um, it's a really, you know, it's a, a mixed emotions day now, sort of, you know, sad but happy at the same time. So um, we're only very new. We're about 18 months old. So um, it's been like this crazy, crazy journey. It's allowed me to, you know, quit my job and pursue different things in the kindness community and then do some public speaking and, and all those sorts of things. So it's been, uh, and I mean, then you meet like-minded people like yourself and other really special people that you meet along the way. So it's, it's really, really cool. Just then what you've said about it being on, it's a celebration of Jim's life too then, isn't it? So you said it's sort of mixed emotions, but it's your way to actually celebrate it because you mentioned earlier, I think something that's really important is that you you actually, you weren't angry at Jim for that situation. You became angry at yourself for not seeing the warning signs and it sounds like it took 10 months or more and then it was the breakdown and then you realize that anger is doesn't actually help anything or anyone in any situation. Anger is actually um, an emotion that if we attach to it, it actually takes us away. So I always teach people you're either moving towards your goals and your visions or away from them. So when you can understand that anger as an emotion actually takes you away. So it sounds like that that's, uh, that's a lot of the work that you went through. So I think it's an amazing, beautiful attachment that you celebrate the, the creation of the Kindness Factory and Jim's um, time on this planet at the same time. Thanks, mate. Yeah, it was um, – I wasn't really sure what to do with it at the start and then I, I sort of felt, well, you know, I wouldn't really be in this position had it not been for him and his influence in my life. So um, it, it just seemed like the perfect fit in my view. But um – yeah, Brilliant. so it was awesome. And you said there before, uh, so we, you'll get to a million, you'll go beyond a million and yeah. I'm imagining that you haven't committed to a burpee per act of kindness <laughs> if you've set a million at uh, the number but I think it's really cool to show that a random act of kindness can be something as small as buying someone's petrol or buying them a coffee or opening the door and then them logging that. So just to get into that mindset of it. So people might think, oh, I haven't got a kind bone in my body or I, I, haven't, I can't afford this or I can't afford that. But it's, it's actually just a gesture. Absolutely. I mean, um, probably the biggest example I've got of that is there's a, um, a 
one of my neighbours who I ran into in the park um, very recently, actually, at the start of, um, of this year. Um, and he had a, one of those motorised scooters. And I said, oh, hectic wheels, mate. G'day. And he's like, oh. And he said, do you want to go? He's like, this full-on bikey. He's got the tats and he's been in heavy crime his whole life. I said, I'd love to. And then he said, so he gave me a full-on tuition on how to ride this scooter. So I had a little bit of a go around the park. And I gave it back to him. And I said, I'd love to have a beer with you, mate. Like, you should come around. I'm only across the road. And he said, oh, no, he goes, you bring one over to mine. I just live here. I said, righto, mate. So I was like, and I got home and I had a shower and all those sorts of things. And I was like, oh, maybe I won't. But I put this post up and someone said, say hi to Pete for me because his name's Pete. I said, sure, okay, so I will. So I, I grabbed two Coronas from my fridge. I took them over to cross the road and I get there and the, his whole gang was there and I got met with these really stern eyes and I was like, I'm, I'm out of my comfort zone here, like I'm not welcome and I said, what do you want? And I said, oh, look, mate, no trouble at all. Just here to give Pete a beer. That's all I want to do. Pete goes, you're welcome. Come sit in. And there was this frame um, and it was of this young guy and they're all sitting around it and sort of, they, it was really somber mood. I didn't really know what was going on. And Pete said, don't worry about them. Um, we're all, we're not in the greatest headspace at the moment. I said, what's going on? He said, that's my son, Odin. And he pointed to the frame and I said, righto. And he said, um, I buried him yesterday. It was his funeral. I said, oh, my God, Pete. I said, I hadn't, you didn't tell me that in the past. Mate, I, I'm so sorry. I gave him a cuddle. I said, what's going on? He said, it was just this tragic accident that had happened. And I said, I'm, I'm so sorry. And he said, sit down, have the beer. So I started telling him a bit about my life. And we ended up in tears together. And he's now an ambassador for us. He's turned his whole life around. And I'm not saying it was because of the beer or anything like that. But the fact that I, I suppose that I took the time to have the beer with him and then he took the time to share his life with me. And it, it created this really beautiful connection. He actually saved a life last week. He um, come to visit me recently and he basically come to basically he came to just say that you know because of you I ended up taking care of my neighbor and I noticed that I hadn't seen her in a few days so I popped in she was passed out at the front of her house and I went in there she'd been like that for three days had soiled herself and whatever whatever it was a diabetic sort of attack and he phoned the ambulance sat with her held her hand um, and he just sort of said I wouldn't have taken the time to do that had it not been for the kindness factory and the shift in in thinking so um, I mean it just goes to show that it doesn't matter who you are what circumstances you come from you can always create an opportunity to be a better person which is really really special and that's sort of what we're doing which is great well and who you are led you to that situation because you're from we when we were having coffee earlier you <laughs> told me you're from a little place called Finley. yeah and uh you said oh, it's out bush and and then we got talking i told you i'm from cobar so Finley's a lot smaller than cobar it's a tiny little community that attitude you spoke before that you you know you spoke with the um, prime minister of australia and you've done some stuff with quinton bryce and those kind of people and you can step into those environments and be yourself and make an impact there and then in the same breath you can step into the environment of some complete strangers and you know g'day mate come and have a beer i'll have a beer with you but you still take who you are as a person into that environment and look what it has led to that is an amazing reflection of you as a human soul just shining your light yeah and uh, i mean it's thank you um it's it's quite humbling when you sort of know that you can do those sorts of things but i mean at the end of the day it's just going back to exactly what you said who you are so in finley i mean 
it's a pretty close knit community. I think it's a town of 800 now. Um, you don't really, um, there's not really an unfamiliar face. So you say g'day to everyone, you help each other out. And I think it's, you know, those country um, values that are instilled in me that sort of made me the person that I am. And I mean, every step along the way, be it, you know, the good memories, the bad memories, the adversity and all those sorts of things that have happened have, have made me the person that I am. And I think it's not until you allow those experiences to let you be you that you can actually be the best person that you can be. Love it. Now, you've got such a bubbly, infectious and uplifting personality <laughs> and people listening are probably thinking, wow, you've had your fair share of adversity in life. But as it happens, there's been some other very interesting times for you since the inception of the Kindness Factory. And you talked about being very active in around cricket and you loved playing sport and things like that, but you hadn't sort of let any of this stop you from being fit and active since those surgeries and almost losing your leg and even celebrating with a barbecue of uh, last day <laughs> with two legs. And you decided to train for an Ironman. I did, yeah. So how that happened, um, my surgeon in the Gold Coast and I actually ended up being friends. So whenever I visit the Gold Coast now, him, him, myself and his wife have dinner together and we become very close. I think there's just something, a lot of doctors say there's something special in me that makes them connect and all those sorts of things. But um, throughout my recovery and rehab, I was in a pool a lot. Um, and I was doing a lot of swimming to get my fitness back up and I was on a bike a lot. So the only thing that I didn't really do was run at that point. Um, and just because it was quite taxing on the body and, you know, broken spine and all those sorts of things. But, um, I was talking to Matt Scott Young, my surgeon, and he sort of said, well, you've got the two, why don't you add in another one? And then you've got triathlon, you should do triathlon. And I said, oh, I never really thought about it, but I'll, yeah, I'll give it a crack. Great. Thinking it would be, you know, a tester, you know, a really small one. Um, and I did a tester and it was great. And I said, Matt, I'm buzzing, man. Like I loved that and I loved the training for it. Like it was good to be competitive again and get back into fitness. And he said, let's do a half Ironman together. I said, you beauty, let's do that. So we did. Um, we trained, you know, in our separate states and all those sorts of things. And we got to cross the finish line together in Mooloolaba in September 2015. And it was really, really cool. I think I was the first person with prosthetic discs and all that kind of stuff to do one, which was really good. Um, and I thought, well, why stop there? I'll do the full Ironman. It'll be great because um, I'm technically disabled and I still, I still can't feel my left leg. So I thought I'll sign up for the, the Ironman. Um, it's in Port Macquarie in, in May 2016. And I was on track and I'm training and I'm, I'm loving life. Hey, the kindness factory's buzzing. I've got my mates around me all the time. And like life was just so great. Um, and I'm out training um, and I was living in Cronulla at the time. And I was riding my bike to Manly to have breakfast and then I would ride it back. And it would be about a 90 round K trip, which was nothing for what I'd been training for. Because it's a, for anyone who doesn't know, an Ironman's like a, a 4K swim. Uh, 180 kilometer bike ride and a 42k run so it's pretty hectic stuff and I'm out training and I got to North Sydney so close to Manly um and I um I was aggressing right um and I'd you know done all the signals and all those sorts of things and suddenly I felt this thump on my body um and the next thing I remember is waking up on the road um in an incredible amount of pain blood everywhere um and my two best friends who were riding with me with holding my hands and just surrounding me um, and emergency services, screaming, sirens, everything. I had no idea what was going on. I'd been hit by a car, four-wheel drive. It was a drunk driver and um, I was in a whole world of pain and I didn't, mainly in the centre of my back, but um, I couldn't feel my legs and it was quite 
quite scary. So um, I went in and out of consciousness for the, for the rest of that day. So I don't really remember too much of it, but my, my best friends who were there and quite emotionally scarred from it um, suggested that I was collected by the bumper um, and then I smashed the windscreen and then he didn't see me until I was actually on the windscreen to which point he braked and then I flew off the vehicle and the impact of that broke my back in four places, um, dislocated my neck, broke my wrist and shattered my hip. So pretty pretty severe stuff that sort of happened through that accident. So it was probably my back was in a worse condition to what had sort of happened initially. Broken back number two. How number long two. did rehab process take for this one? Um, it was pretty full on. So I was in ICU for six days um, fighting for life and then, um, you know, punctured lungs and done all those sorts of things. And then I went on to the wards after that for six weeks. And after that, I faced the challenge of learning to walk for the third time in my life. So um, rehab was about six weeks after that until I was well enough to sort of come home and um, and, and start life again, I guess. But And we know from your active lifestyle now that you, you did start life again and, and you, you know, you've, you've tackled a couple of broken backs and all this adversity and everything. But something that really struck me just recently when we had this coffee just earlier is when you were talking about, so not just the physical rehab you had to go through because it was a drunk driver that hit you, you had to go through some court processes. And I myself know what that's like when you're going in there. Um, I don't like to say victim, but in that victim sort of sense. And, you told me about after the last court case. Can you tell the listeners what happened after this last court case? Yeah, so I mean, it was a it was a question of liability, um, and you know, he was clearly at fault. There were witnesses that could back that up. Um, he was obviously drunk as well. Um, and it was just this really nasty battle. I mean, the first date he didn't rock up, um, so it was just you know. Clearly, he didn't really, wasn't really bothering him what he'd put me through or anything like that. The second time, there were some legalities that were mismatched and all those sorts of things. And on the third occasion that we went there, I was with my brothers and my, my father. And um, he, he, he was obviously found guilty of, of hitting me with his car um, and being drunk. And he lost his license and there was community service involved and fined heavily. And I just looked at him after the, the proceedings were over and were out the front. And he, re- he looked really defeated and down and um, it didn't really feel like a victory to me. It just felt like it was finally over, which was great. And I was happy to have that stress out of my life again. But looking at him, I just, my heart went out to him and I'm not really sure why. Um, so I, I went up to him and I just sort of said, are you okay? And he sort of he looked at me and asked why. And I just said, I'm, I'm, I'm just asking if you're okay. And I said, how are you getting home? He obviously couldn't drive. He'd lost his license. Um, and I said to him, um, we'll give you a lift. And he said, what and my my brothers and my dad were completely shocked um and I said we're going to give you a lift home and for me it wasn't about being doing a good deed or an act of kindness or anything like that it was nothing to do with that it was more about understanding that I felt no um I guess angst towards him or anger towards him and that I wanted that period of my life to be over um so we gave him a lift home I've never heard from him since and I really hope he's doing well but um it got me to question because you know my brother's and, and dad's response to that was aggression and they didn't want him in the car and all those sorts of things and for me it wasn't I just wanted that period of my life to be over and I was grateful for that period of my life to be over and I as you said I find anger is a pretty it's a wasted emotion and I wanted my life to take off in the right direction again as I knew it could um but it got me pondering and I why do we treat each other this way why does the world do these things to each other we're all in this together um and I think you know genuine courtesy towards each other is probably what the world needs a little bit more of and kindness um at this point in time so 
Yeah, that was my, my thinking around all of that. But I'm sure he appreciated that time <laughs> very much. Good on you. This is I just love uh, being immersed in these kind of stories and you just start to think how uh, how much you can incorporate that mindset into your daily life just regardless of the situations of, of what's put you there. Do you, to, to develop this mindset, we've talked about, I think a lot of it has to come to, to do with the uh, country upbringing, absolutely, but have you done any work throughout these processes with um, coaches or psychologists or anything like that that have really helped you understand your mind at a deeper level to, to get you through these times but give you those skills around your emotional intelligence, for example? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I think I said earlier, like prior to breaking my back um, the first time, I was very one dimensional. So um, there wasn't much to me. I was an athlete, I was a cricketer and I had that mentality. Like I was the proper athlete. What do you, what do you call it? Like the, how do you, you know, you categorize me as the athlete and that's all I did. I was very boring in my view. Um, And then breaking my back and losing gym, um, it was the hardest time of my life. So, I mean, the accident itself was quite tough, but losing gym probably most specifically was very, very tough. Um, and it wasn't until I enlisted the help of a, a psychologist, it was a trauma psych. Um, and it was through a workplace incident that we met um, and she shifted my mindset. So, I mean, I was always, always like to think that I was a good person and I come from country upbringings and kindness and all these wonderful things had been instilled in me but it wasn't till we started working together um, that I really realized that I had potential to be whoever I wanted to be Um, and she took a really holistic approach to my well-being so it wasn't about you know I had post-traumatic stress I was actually the one to find Jim um, after he'd passed away and I had memories of that they were quite vivid and I have nightmares and I couldn't sleep and had all the the symptoms of post-traumatic stress Um, and she decided that she didn't want to just treat the symptoms that she wanted to treat me as a holistic person or a whole person. Um, so we looked into to diet, nutrition, um, and then, you know, a lot of mindfulness stuff as well. So I, I just had a lot of trouble un, unwinding at the end of the day, be at work, the nightmares, the memories, whatever it was um, that was getting to me. So we, we sort of tackled all those things together. And, and there's absolutely, yeah, I mean, you know, we've, we've got this really close bond now and, and she's just someone who I, I'm inspired by daily, um, my, my own psychologist. Um, she's been an incredible influence in my life and got me on the right track. And um, that's, yeah, I mean, I mean, there's a lot of different people that I'd have to thank if I had to, but she's been, a, you know, a really key person in my life in the last sort of five years that have put me in the position now that I'm, I'm able to do the things that I do. And um, I think it's a, you know, a mutual respect that we have for each other as well. So, um, you know, I've, I've enlisted recently the help of a naturopath as well. Um, so I'm really, I'm not against medicine, um, but, you know, painkillers, I think are somewhat abused at certain points. So trying to stay on the park initially, I was living on endone and then combating that, like, you know, the, the, um, the symptoms that you get from using endone, you know, the drowsiness and all that. I was combating by that by abusing caffeine. So be it coffee, nodos and Red Bull just to get on the park. So getting all that stuff out of my system and then, you know, taking a whole holistic approach to my own health and, as you and I sort of spoke about gut health and, you know, the you, it's your second brain or even sometimes your first brain and getting that right first and all that sort of stuff. So um, for me, it's, um, you know, staying active, getting my nutrition right um, and the rest sort of then tends to look after itself. I mean, you can look into mental health and get professionals to help you and all those sorts of things. But I think if you're not doing the groundwork behind the scenes with your nutrition and your sleep and 
mindfulness and all the other things that you can do with your nutrition, then it's really, you're sort of still going to fight that battle for a long time. So people can give you the strategies that they have, but it's, it's sort of like leading a horse to water in that you've got to actually do do them to make sure that they actually work really well. So I resonate with that philosophy closely that your psychologist has worked with you because as a coach, my philosophy with my athletes was always, uh, I want to make my athletes better people and that in turn will help them become better athletes. And that's the way I approach clients now too in a life coaching or a mentoring sense of if they want to be the best parent or if they want to be the best business person, I want to make them the best person holistically, which in turn will make them better at whatever it is they want to do. So I, I resonate with that. We went to the coffee shop. You had green tea and I had coffee. And you mentioned there before that you you have abused it over time. But tell us why you've given up coffee just recently. Um, Yeah, so I had a bit of a health scare this year. Um, I've I've actually got a a tumour on my adrenal gland. So I had a a tumour on my adrenal gland. It's been removed since um, and also on my pituitary gland. So, um, I mean, I'm of the belief that, you know, that's a direct result of all the stress that I'd sort of faced in the five years and um, nobody's perfect. So I dealt with the stress the best way I knew how to. And before accepting professional help through my psychologist, um, I didn't have the strategies or the tools to be able to cope with them effectively so I think some people you know when they're going through a stressful time in their life they lose their hair or they become aggressive and that never really happened to me I never really lost my character um, or my hair <laughs> or you know you know the acne and all that you know it didn't express itself in that way and I'm, I'm firmly of the belief that um, through you know um, adrenal fatigue and all those sorts of things this sort of stuff happened to me so um, I'm through the worst of it now I'm still having treatment uh, on Chemo all of it, treatment. Uh, radiation. Radiation. So, yeah. So that, that's still ongoing, and um, I, and I'm on I'm, I'm on the right track again. But I've sort of yeah I've really looked at my diet again, um, and like taken a holistic approach to it myself, I suppose this time, and sort of said, you know, I'm of the belief that you create any of the any of the things that happen in your life are a result of you creating them yourself. So um, I'm not blaming myself for having these tumors show up or anything like that, but um, certainly I, I think they're a result of me not coping well enough. Um, um, and there is no way that I could have coped any better through the experiences that I faced. Um, and I've learned now how to cope better with those experiences. So if it was to ever happen again, I, I'm well equipped, which is great. It's a really powerful position to be in. But um, yeah, I created this for myself and I'm of the opinion that I can probably get myself out of it through the help of practitioners. So medical professionals, psychologists and and then my own sort of, you know, looking after myself, sleeping better and doing the right things. So um, yeah, so I've been off coffee for a, about a week now and it's, it's really good. Acceptance and choice is what I decipher from what you're talking about. You accepted that, okay, I did this to myself and I often say that to people, we are a direct result of uh, what we put into our bodies and that's why it's really important that you think about your long-term health and every day of your life in regards to that. You've accepted that your uh, life has created this tumour and that's the way that your body's saying, hey, let's slow down a little bit. And then the choice is what am I going to do about this situation to make sure I'm moving forward and not backwards and how can I get through this? And it's made you reflect on your diet and your coffee consumption and everything like that and you're starting to ask a lot of questions. And We had a really cool chat at the green tea shop. I won't say the coffee <laughs> shop, the green tea shop around all that health. So I love that... Uh, you know that it, you have accepted it and chosen to to make some really positive changes in this space so look kath i'm all about action and i ask all my guests this question and i want to know uh what's one piece of advice on what specific action 
the listeners can take to implement uh, into their lives to help make more of an impact in their communities and in their own lives? I think it, for me, it comes down to accountability and choice. So um, we're all accountable for everything, for every decision that we make every day. So we, we choose to wake up in the morning and go to work or to be a mum, to be a dad or whatever it may be. We, sometimes we choose to have cornflakes over toast and uh, like it or not, those decisions have a, a huge impact on not only ourselves, but our family, our friends and the world around us. So for me, it's about being accountable for those choices. So choosing to be a better person, be it through nutrition and exercise and all those sorts of things or being community minded. Um, so for me, like I'd encourage people to make effective choices and choices that are in line with their values as well. I think there's nothing worse than seeing someone who's not authentic. So being your true self and that doesn't have to look like doing kind things for people that might look like I don't know, helping a kid out or it might look like being a, a better mum or it might look like being a better sibling, sister, brother, whatever it may be. Um, but we're accountable, like it or not, for our choices. So choose wisely, I, I suggest, is probably my biggest thing. Accountability and choice. That's brilliant. I love <laughs> it. Now, uh, before we dive into the fast five questions and we'll wrap things up uh, shortly and I'm probably going to uh, go to the park and do some burpees and then I'm going <laughs> to grab a couple of Coronas. I'm going to take him to your neighbour's place yeah, yeah. to pee. Awesome. And uh, we're going to chat to him about being a lifesaver because that sounds grand. But before we uh, before we do all that, I wanted to give you a gift, and I mentioned there before about the life teas, and it just suddenly clicked that Dom has actually bought you a life tea, he and has. that was one of the ones that we raised money for limbs for Beautiful. life. So there's that connection. I've actually got a man's life tea here for you because I wanted to give it to you, so you can then on give it to someone else as part of uh, oh, one that's of the awesome. kindness factory and what they have thank to offer. Thank you so much. So that's thank amazing. you. That's uh, I've that's got a hoodie a, for you too as well. But. Oh, it's a little swap meet now. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> thank you very much. Okay, so we've got. Uh, two-part question so where can our listeners learn more about you so social media website etc and how can i and the listeners help you on your journey yeah i mean you can learn more about probably the best way we've got our twitter twitter facebook and instagram handles they're all at kindness factory so kindness factory is all one word um and probably most importantly is our website which is www.kindnessfactory.com um, and, and I'll link all that up in the show notes oh, for everyone. Fantastic. Um, and the best way that you and, and the listeners can get involved is to, to go onto the website. And, and if you are feeling kind or um, empathetic or whatever it may be, and you want to get amongst our million acts of kindness, please go onto the website and log an act today. So it might just be something as simple as starting a conversation or having a coffee or buying someone's fuel, or it may be anything. It might be helping your mum out, helping your dad out, helping your sister out, whatever it is. Um, get onto the website and help us achieve you can be it's your chance to be one in a million so that's pretty epic absolutely <laughs> okay the fast five questions now just let this roll off the tongue don't give yourself too much time to think about it what's one habit you wish you could change uh i'm the oh, one habit um i'm a terrible cook but that's something more a skill that i want a habit i can't even think Oh, coffee. Yeah. There you go. Coffee. And you, you're Easy. on that yeah, process. Yeah. Well done. What makes you feel absolutely pumped and exhilarated and energized? Kindness. Have you ever washed a dog? I have, yep. It was terrible. Excellent. <laughs> I, I got, yeah, suds everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Be yourself. And what are you most grateful for in your life right now? Uh, my experiences. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm, the thing I'm most grateful for is the kindness factor. Obviously, it's changed my life and 
I'm probably more grateful for the people that I've met along the way. So the experiences and the people that I've met along the way. Kath, you're an absolute genuine bloody legend. You are the epitome of everything I coach to people in this world around mindset and you prove that we can't let our external environments dictate our internal environments. You're a beautiful balance of humility and brute force resilience. Keep shining your kind and courageous light to the world. Thank you, mate. It's amazing. What an unbelievable soul. Permission, gratitude, kindness. How about wheelchair racing in rehab? And Kath proved that we can build a community anywhere to help us on our journeys. Accountability and choice were her actionable advice. So I made the choice to do the burpee session afterwards that I promised to Kath and I was getting creative with fence jumping burpees and a real variety and I'll link this video in the show notes just for laughs and it's on our Facebook page too. But I didn't have the Coronas with her neighbour Pete. And as it turns out when we were chatting afterwards we realised one of my leg amputee athletes, Sarah Walsh, had actually participated in that burpee challenge years ago and she did a few rounds of burpees on her one and only leg to help raise that money for cash. Make sure you invest into some acts of kindness and jump onto the Kindness Factory website and log those acts to help Kath and the Kindness Factory get to the 1 million mark and beyond. Kath did give me one of her Kindness Factory hoodies and every time I put it on, it's like putting on a cape and it makes me think, how can I be more kind today? Kath is a living, breathing example of mindset coaching at its best. And if you're keen to develop greater resiliency or get coaching to help achieve your personal and professional goals, shoot me an email on brett at lifeintentional.com.au or jump onto yourlifeofimpact.com forward slash coaching and explore how you can invest into your own personal life coaching with me. This is an online service that allows you to take your life to the next level from anywhere in the world. If you like this episode, please jump onto your podcast app and give us a five-star review. This helps immensely for me to be able to continue delivering value to you. It doesn't matter what app you're using, whether it's Apple Podcasts, which is formerly known as iTunes Podcast, whether it's Podcast Addict or Stitcher or whatever it is. You guys subscribing and downloading each episode is what keeps this podcast alive. And also, please share with your friends, your family, your community, and everyone you believe will benefit from this podcast. Don't forget to give me your feedback on what you loved and what you want to hear more of, so what value I can help bring into your reality. Reach out to us on social media, so Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Life for Excellence. That's at L-I-F-E-F-O-R-X-L-N-S. And you can also find us at Your Life of Impact. And as always, remember, this is your life journey, your life of impact.